Hey, so it's Michelle Dawson here, and I need to lay out my disclosure statements. So uh, if you ever wondered how bad my ADD, ADHD, and lack of sleep Monday through Monday actually is, well, here you go. These are my non-financial disclosure statements. I volunteer with Feeding Matters. I'm a former treasurer with the Council of State Association Presidents. I'm a past president with the South Carolina Speech Language Hearing Association. I am a current member of both ASHA and Skisha. And for this year, for 2021, I volunteered for the Pediatric Feeding Disorder Planning Committee for the ASHA 2021 convention. My financial disclosures. All right. So I receive compensation for first bite presentations, as well as talking teletherapy and understanding dysphagia from speechtherapypd.com. I also receive royalties from speechtherapypd.com for ongoing webinars that I have on their website, as well as compensation from PESI Incorporate for a lecture course that a webinar that I have on their website as well. I am coordinator for clinical education and clinical assistant professor for the Masters of Speech Language Pathology program at Francis Marion University in Florence, South Carolina, for which I receive an annual salary. I also receive royalties from the sale of my book, Chasing the Swallow, Truth, Science, and Hope for Pediatric Feeding and Swallowing Disorders that I self-published and is available on Amazon. And I do receive royalties from the accompanying 13 and a half hour CEU for the book from speechtherapypd.com. So yeah, I stay pretty busy, but those are my financial and non-financial disclosures. If you ever have any questions, please feel free to reach out. All right. Thanks y'all. Bye. Hey everybody. It's Michelle. And I am completely cup runneth over with joy because today I get to announce that Chasing the Swallow, Truth, Science, and Hope for Pediatric Feeding and Swallowing Disorders is 100% done and in publication. And you can check out your copy on Amazon. And the best part If that book moves you, if it grows your evidence-based triangle to to engage in interprofessional practice, to do the root cause analysis to why the child is presenting with the PFD, to then engage with the team to get that child to a point of healing so that the real growth can begin, then y'all check out speechtherapypd.com because they are gracious enough to entertain all of these amazing, joyful ideas. And they're currently carrying the book for 13.5 ASHA CEUs. So (sighs) thank you for being a part of the first bite journey that led to Chasing the Swallow. And be sure to check out speechtherapypd.com for the 13.5 ASHA CEUs that accompany it. Happy learning. Hi, folks, and welcome to First Bite, fed, fun, and functional, a speech therapy podcast sponsored by speechtherapypd.com. I am your host on this nerd venture, Michelle Dawson, MS, 
CCC SLP CLC, the All Things Peds SLP. I am a colleague in the trenches of home health early intervention right there with you. I run my own private practice, Heartwood Speech Therapy, here in Town, South Carolina, and I guest lecture nationwide on best practices for early intervention for the medically complex and fragile child. First Bite's mission is short and sweet, to bring light, hope, knowledge, and joy to the pediatric clinician, parent, or advocate by way of a nerdy conversation, so there's plenty of laughter too. In this podcast, we cover everything from AAC to breastfeeding, ethics on how to run a private practice, pediatric dysphagia to clinical supervision, and all other topics in the world of pediatric speech pathology. Our goal is to bring evidence-based practice straight to you by interviewing subject matter experts to break down the communication barriers so that we can access the knowledge of their fields. Or, as a close friend says, to build the bridge. By bringing other professionals and experts in our field together, we hope to spark advocacy, joy, and passion for continuing to grow and advance care for our little ones. Every fourth episode, I join in. I'm Erin Forward, MSP, CCC SLP, the Yankee byway of Rochester, New York transplant who actually inspired this journey. I bring a different perspective, that of a newish clinician with experience in early intervention, pediatric acute care, and nonprofit pediatric outpatient settings. So sit back, relax, and watch out for all our squirrels and enjoy this geeky gig brought to you by SpeechTherapyPD.com. Everybody, today is the culmination of all the things. So kind of hang with me through the waterworks as we like open this. This morning, Erin and I woke up and we found out that the podcast has been downloaded over 1 million times. And for all of you that have been with us from the beginning, that have joined us on the journey to all of the behind the scenes contributors that make all of this happen every single week because it's a lot. Did you see my eyelid twitch, Erin? It was twitching. It's a lot. So Sumi and Yumi and Darla and Chad and Sarah and Annalisa and everybody that's just been there with Aaron and I as we poured out all of our beings into making this dream come to a fruition to touch all of the lives that it has. We are very grateful. Also, I am really snotty and we don't think it's COVID, but we went to Lisha last week for an amazing convention. So thank you, Hillary Cooper, for throwing one heck of a PFD two-day conference inside of your state association conference. Shout out to Kristen West and Rocky Garcia for all of the knowledge that they just like truth bombed on all of us. Can we just acknowledge Kristen's heels? Oh my God, the girl in heels has legs for days. So Kristen, we love your heels. But it was great. And I came back with the snuts because... Humidity doesn't like me. So, hi, Erin. Today's episode is where I really, truly, it's one of the topics that I think Erin just, she freaking radiates. And I get to sit back and be like this proud mama. I got to watch you present this on Saturday morning. You were 8 a.m. on a Saturday in New Orleans. Bless your soul. And you absolutely crushed it because you have been able to synthesize the neurodiversity affirming movement 
with current research into why play is vital because of all of your advanced coursework and training. Now, this is not something that Erin's dipped her toes in for the last, I want to say two years. She has taken more courses. Good Lord. Every time I turn around, I'm like, Hey, let's do this thing. And she's like, I can't, I'm broke. I spent my money on another class. I kind of got today. Oops. <laughs> Oops. <laughs> yeah. Cause I was like, Oh, also if you haven't done so yet, sign up for team first bite for the dysphagia research society race. We have a team. It's a little competition, but I was like, Erin, you have to sign up for the race. And she's like, I have to wait till tomorrow. Cause I kind of signed up for another class. <laughs> but yes, but so break it down for us. What are we talking about today and high level overview? And then let's deep dive. So I would like to start with, because I think every time I have this conversation, people want like a set answer. So here's what you need to do. Like, here's a structured protocol. Here's what I implement in a session. And unfortunately, I don't have any of that for you because (laughs) if you want to do truly play-based therapy, you really have to understand these philosophies and implement them into your sessions. And it's a journey. I use that word and it just makes me think of the bachelor because they can only say journey, but it really is a journey. And you learn every day through every patient. So you're never going to go into a session and know exactly what to do. You're just going to know how to better assess your patients. You're going to know how to better connect with them. And you're going to know what's really valuable Play-based therapy is a topic that's very like a hot topic right now, which is amazing. But because of that, there's a lot of different opinions and different resources out there on what play-based therapy is. And that's kind of what we're talking about today. Like what really is play-based therapy? What is playful therapy? What is therapy that has games in it? Because in the true definition of play, if you're telling a child how to play, that's not play. However, we do have, and I saw a post today and I will figure out who posted it because I want to give them credit, but they were talking about how some children, it's hard. Child-led play therapy is hard at first because they don't have the initiative or they haven't been given the opportunity to play themselves. And those are moments where you have to jump in, but you have to understand why you're jumping in. You have to understand their zone of proximal development and where you're trying to get them to. So that's a kind of overview of what we're talking about today. You just have to continue to deep dive into these resources and support and give yourself grace. And also, if you want to do play-based therapy, you're going to have to analyze yourself a lot. I mean, I am in therapy myself, so there's nothing wrong with that. Not that you have to do that, but you're going to have to reflect on yourself as a person for a multitude of reasons. So wait, my two cents from the seasoned gray hair lady in the room is, When you really embrace this approach, make sure that you have plenty of deodorant on and a change of clothes because this is so much fun, but you're going to sweat. And I had a mom come into therapy yesterday and her little one was in the Lycra and I'd been going up and down and up and down for 35 minutes and was like hot flash compounded by like in the mask and heavy lifting. Cause he's a heavy little bugger. And she was like, do you want me to take over? I was like, yes, yes, please. You tag, <laughs> you do the up and down. So 
make sure you have a change of clothes handy and plenty of deodorant on. Yes. Okay. So take it away, lady. Where do you want to go? So I think where we kind of start is play-based versus playful because there's room for playful therapy everywhere. And playful is more so of what type of tone you use with that child, how you're making it light. You might be joking around with them and that's great, but play is an entity in and of itself. And play is something that you can use as a tool to help children learn. I use the quote in my lecture from Karen Purvis about how it takes 400 repetitions to create a new synapse in the brain, unless it's done in play, in which case it takes 10 to 20 repetitions. And that's because of the importance of play and how our brain works. Our brains were created to play. That's why we have a very, and you heard me talk about this. And when we talk about play-based feeding therapy, our brains were developed so that through neuroplasticity to play so that we can learn how to interact with our environment. Animals that have larger brains oftentimes play more. That's how you can figure out whether someone is a friend or foe. That's a lot of times what animals look to when they play. And so I talk a lot about how you say hi to a patient for many reasons. One of my OT mentors, Dylan Hartley, always, we had a conversation one time and he's like, think about how you say hi to your patients, try to make it playful. Do you walk right up to them? Do you go right and talk to the parent and then engage with the child? I make sure to make every hello I say to a patient playful, play-based. The hello would be more playful, but that still has its place and its value. And from a trauma-informed standpoint, if you say hello and goodbye the same way, that helps them feel safe and that builds connection. So that's really, really important. I love the book Play by Stuart Brown. And in that book, he breaks down what play actually is. And again, this will be a review from what we talked about in the feeding episode, but play is supposed to be purposeless. Play is supposed to make you feel like you have reduced consciousness of self. You don't think about what you look like. I look like a crazy person when I'm doing therapy with a lot of my patients because I'm running around. You don't look like a crazy person. You look like a very happy person, but I mean, it's a little bit. Yes, but there's a reason for it. You experience this flow and they talk about flow and floor time. That's really, really important. This back and forth, there's this desire for it to continue. It's voluntary and it's fun and you lose this track of time. So if a child you're working with doesn't want to play with you, then you have to think about why, and you can't force them to play with you. So I utilize DIR floor time because that's what I'm trained in, but there's a lot of other relationship-based therapies and DIR stands for development, individual differences, and relationship. So you're looking at development via these functional, emotional, developmental capacities, and you're doing that in the context of relationship and how the differences that a child possesses. So In that way, you have to make sure that a child is regulated and that they want to engage with you. And those are baseline skills that a child needs to have to develop language. So if you're trying to work on language with a child and they don't have those skills, then you're going to be in trouble. (laughs) And, or they might look like they're learning language, but it's probably not meaningful and it's probably not sustained very deep in their memory. So they're probably anxious when you ask them those questions or when they have to communicate in whatever way you want them to communicate. And why I use play so much too, is because it helps to build that engagement 
it helps to create this emotional connection, these emotional connotations, which is how children develop memory. So when you're in play, it's fun and you're feeling the fun or you're feeling the fear of something happening, or you're feeling this frustration because something didn't work the way you wanted it to. And that's how children develop memories. And you have to have a memory of something to develop language for it. It makes me think of core memory from Pixar. I think that's Pixar. I think so. But a huge part of play is emotion and authenticity. Inside out. Yes. And Roman, you are on it tonight. Yes. So... Joy. I'm Joy. Sorry. Just had to throw that out there. (laughs) So when I look to using play, I look to using play to help me regulate a child and engage them. And I try to start with fun, but oftentimes you have to get into their world first. Mm -hmm. So one of the most important things about using play is figuring out first how they're playing. Yes. Because you may have a way that you want to play and you may have a way that comes natural to you, but it doesn't matter. And their play can give us a lot of information about them, about their sensory system, about their language, about their engagement, about all of these differences. So my number one tip is just sit back and watch. I will watch a kid for like 10 minutes straight and not do anything because I'm trying to figure out how they're engaging with a toy, what input they're trying to get themselves to help them regulate. Are they jumping up and down a lot? Are they trying to get proprioceptive input? Are they moving their head to the side so that they can get vestibular input? Are they covering their ears because the environment is too loud? Are they mouthing things a lot because that oral stimulation is calming to them? Are they running around? And is that because they don't know what to do with their body in space? So if I move it quickly, I feel like I'm in more control over it. Or are they running around because they're so dysregulated that their body doesn't know what to do. So I start with their play and what their play looks like. And I acknowledge that no play is wrong. If they're enjoying it or if they're using it for some reason, whether it's to regulate or to understand what an object does, it's fine. They can play however they want, but my goal is for them to connect with me and pull them into my world. This is everything that we were not taught to do. And that's the beauty of this. This is how many of you don't have to raise your hands, but if you want to like throw a hand up, feel free to. How many of us were taught how to write a lesson plan for early intervention speech therapy or taught to write a lesson plans for our four, five, eight, nine-year-olds that have autism or autistic individuals? We were taught how to lay out and structure the entire 30-minute session or the 60-minute session, and everything had to be accounted for. And through this, it's like a 180 where my takeaway and what you've mentored me on and how to grow is I embed the language for their led activity. So what I'll do is I'll still pull out, everybody here should have a copy of the PRC core vocab, like the first 100 words, right? And so what I do is if it's an early intervention case, then I've gone through, I've done my standardized assessments, I've done my family guided routines based interview. And then I use that data to drive which core vocab that family wants us to target, whether that be through ASL, AAC, or spoken language. And I am doing the parallel talk or the expansion 
to the activities that they're doing and embedding their desired fringe vocabulary. That being said, there is a time and a place for us to shush and let the child process, which again, for the gray-haired Botox women in the room, this was not taught to us in school. We were taught drill, 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 drill. And now we're like, oh, but wait, hold the phone. (laughs) So yes. (laughs) Well, and you have to think too about our just all language processors who learn chunks for learning is a large percentage of autistic children that we work with. Yes. So in those instances though, what I've learned is the script carries emotion. Yes. So when a child is using a script, they're connecting it to an emotional experience. That's why it's sustained in their memory. Yes. But when you decode the language with children that you work with that utilize scripts, you have to more so pull from the emotion. So I did an in-service at the clinic I work at today, this week on circles of communication. Wait, explain that. The circle of communication, they use this in floor time is the instructor I had called it a serve and receive and serve back. So can a child both initiate a communication, receive it and respond to it? And that can look very different with very different children. So a smile and a laugh back, and then a laugh is a circle. I'm going to presume competence. I'm going to presume that that child is doing something that means something. I'm going to acknowledge it. I'm going to oftentimes mirror their emotion because what we are learning is that we've learned that autistic individuals have empathy. It just looks different than ours. Yes. What we know is that it looks different. So what I talk about in a lot of my lectures is this affect reciprocity that Dr. Stanley Greenspan talks about. So the value of you sharing an emotion and someone understanding the emotion that you are having and sharing it with you. And unfortunately, a lot of autistic children don't have that opportunity with their caregivers as much because of that double empathy problem. And so when you feel an emotion and some, you feel like someone doesn't understand it or someone isn't acknowledging it, that's very traumatic. You're not sharing this affect. Like, can you, I can think of moments where I've been so frustrated or something happened and I love my sister so much, but I will go and call her and I will word vomit at her with so much emotion and she'll be like, okay. Yes. And I can like, see Deb doing that. Devin, I poured a lot of my like emotions into this conversation. And then you just said, okay. And it makes me so angry. So how do these neurodivergent children feel when their sensory system is so overloaded and they're banging their head because it hurts? And you say, you're okay. You're okay. No. I, when first of all, pet peeve number one, do not tell a child that they are okay when they are clearly not okay, because what you are setting them up for is to not trust their body and to then feel that when in any other instance where they're not okay, where you may agree with them, that you won't listen. Okay, wait, I have a question. And I have this case and he's not technically my case, okay? And I'm so glad that you gave that as like a specific example. So we have this precious little power hour on Wednesdays at one o'clock. And it's this small group AAC. I'm working with my child. They're all four, five, and six, but they're all the same size. 
and they all have autism is one of the diagnoses in this group of four or five kids. Cause we have one that comes like every other week. I digress, but I'm the SLP. And then there's two CODAs and an OT and we each have our own child and we're in the large gym, right? When one of the little ones in the group is really excited, he squeals in total delight. And it's like that joy squeal that just like your whole body responds to. And you're like, yeah, buddy, get it. And normally it happens when like we throw him in the Lycra or he's jumping on the trampoline and we've been like modeling on our AAC devices, blah, 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 blah. But when he does that, friend A gets scared and throws his hands up and he goes, shush, baby, shush. So we've been modeling. He is happy. He is excited. One of our goals has been trying to put in like emotion words, right? It is loud. I am scared, but I am safe because he's in a safe environment. But we want to acknowledge that he's scared. It's a startling sound to him. So, but we've been modeling. It's loud. It scared me, but I am safe. Oh, and we also started adding in, I am loved because I mean, everybody needs to know that they're loved. And that podcast that you had me listen to. Yes, 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 yes. The one when we were doing our makeup. Is there a better script that we could be modeling aside from he is loud, he is excited. It scared me, but I am safe and I am loved. Is there something different? Are we doing okay? Because I keep, over the last two months, we've been changing the script based off of all Mm -hmm. of the neurodiversity affirming conversations and guests that we've had. How screwed up have I made this and how do I make it better? Go no, I don't think that the script matters to him. Okay. I think the script is important for him to advocate. Yes. He's going to feel the emotion and the script. I think the script will eventually, because in the book, The Body Keeps the Score, they talk about how language can be very healing and the ability to have language to communicate. Yes. To communicate can help heal trauma, but for a child that is a just language processor and a child that has significant sensory differences, he's going into this emotion. And when he's feeling this emotion, he's using a script that caught on when he was feeling that emotion. And so you're giving him words to be able to communicate to other communication partners, how he is feeling and why he's feeling that way. And then as that grows, he will then understand that language because he can carry it from one situation to another. So also when he's feeling that emotion and someone says that to him, like, oh, is this loud? It just helps connect more because it's similar to when parents really understand their children and can read their mind. Essentially, you understand him and you understand how he's feeling. You can acknowledge that script. But if he is able to script a more functional air quote, like lit phrase that people can understand then he can connect with those people more so too, because they can understand why he's feeling that way. He can advocate for what he needs. And then he can connect that experience to another experience where he's loud. Because the other thing that we learn about just not language processors is that they also process memory in chunks. Yes. So if there was, for example, I'm trying to think if there was something in that room or some memory of that. Other babies crying. When he was little and he was around other babies crying, it was, there's back history. So anytime he hears a high-pitched squeal. Or anytime he sees a baby, he's going to assume that every baby is going to scream loudly and yes. make him feel unsafe. 
Or Dylan uses the example of a lot of our autistic children are afraid of like the hand dryers, which I know it's supposed to help the environment, but like whoever made those did not think about children that have auditory sensitivities at all. Well, also apparently they don't, they're not healthy because they're spraying Oh yeah. They don't make their hands actually. Yeah. They're not thoroughly clean for a child. Okay. So I went into this bathroom and the hand dryer scared me. So then dad takes child to go to a store and they have to go to the bathroom and dad says, you're going to be fine. Don't worry about it. You're safe. Then child goes into the bathroom and hand dryer goes off and he's scared. Now dad scared me because I'm associating this memory with these large chunks. I'm not able to separate. That was just the hand dryer. Dad said I was going to be safe. And then I went in there and now dad scared me. And so now there's like, you're having to kind of work through that larger chunk of a memory into smaller memories. It's also about finding connections too. I have a patient who wants to connect with everyone, loves everyone. How did dad scare them? So it's more so because child was afraid to go to the bathroom because the child thought there might be a hand dryer in there. And dad said, you're going to be okay. Dad brought child into the bathroom. And now because that hand dryer still scared me, I'm making a big chunk of that memory. So the hand dryer scared me before now the hand dryer and dad scared me because these children learn memories in such big chunks. They can't separate. Dad makes me feel safe in other scenarios this couldn't have been his fault. He was here and he brought me here. Yes. And so it doesn't mean he's not going to trust dad in every scenario, but there you're going to have to do a little bit of work to rebuild a part of that after that happens, if that makes it's sense. kind of like how we see our medically fragile children that have gone through extensive surgeries and lots of different procedures. They connotate that with scrubs or they connotate pulling into a parking lot or they may be angry and upset with that specific caregiver, that's always the caregiver that takes them to those events. I remember when Bear had repeat surgery after repeat surgery, like the first year of his life, like we would go in the car. If we even drove past the hospital, he would yell at me and say like, no. And I was the bad guy. And all we did was just drive past a building, but it's on Harden Street. So like, well, technically Harden Street extension. So you just can't like, I mean, you can't avoid it. Like you just gotta go, but it's the association. It wasn't malice intent. It was just the child's created this neural network. Mm -hmm. With that, it's just important to think about the emotion. I think that's what I try to emphasize is the affect and the emotions child A is afraid of child B, but the hardest part is child B loves child A and just wants to cuddle with him. Also child A smells like old spice and has a long ponytail. So like child B like really loves child A because it's, I mean, all the joy and he smells great, but every time child B is happy and squeals, child A shuts down. It's like, And then it's like a domino effect. We have a lot of laughter on Wednesdays at one. Yes. But you have to match that affect and match that emotion. And authenticity is really important. Like children know if you're being authentic and yes, I have to pump up my affect and that doesn't mean I have to get louder. And that doesn't mean I have to get more excited. I will whisper. I will slow down. I will get low. I will slow my voice. 
use your voice as a tool because that can pull kids in in ways that you don't even have to use words. When I'm working with a child who's non-speaking, I often try not to use symbolic language right away. I will match their vocalizations. I will match their movements. I will use my facial expressions because 80% of what we communicate is nonverbal. So we also have to remember that. I don't want to throw them off with language that they're not ready for. So if you can start out and really connect, and like I said, that circle of communication, can I laugh and they laugh with me if I'm using a toy, which honestly, with a lot of my non-speaking children, especially my medically complex children, I try not to bring a toy in at the beginning. Mm -hmm. I'm the toy. And I try to utilize a lot of sensory strategies. I have one patient, not accidental trauma, loves a lot of probe input. So wants to jump, wants to have his feet on the ground to feel it in his joints. And for 30 minutes of most of our sessions, it is me lifting him up, building anticipation, ready, set, and like wait and like smiling with him, waiting for him to smile, to laugh anything to share with me and then lifting him up, giving him some sensory input and building that circle over and over and over again. And I will do the same thing over and over and over again. And sometimes it'll be a smile and sometimes it'll be a facial expression. And and eventually this child will has started to take his arm and push it under my arm to try and lift me up because he knows exactly what he wants And he's trying to be more specific with it because he knows more of what he wants. Mm -hmm. And now we're starting to make more sounds to say go because he can trust the interaction so he can build his language skills. Something that's really, really important to think about when we're using play is to break down what you're actually doing. Occupational therapists are great at this. They do task analysis. So they look at an ADL, something that they want a child to do, and they break it down into its parts. No offense to the speech therapist. I didn't learn how to do this in grad school. I know some people did. I know there are some programs, so I don't want to say that this isn't something that any programs encourage, but you have to think about everything you're asking a child to do and what their cognitive load is. So how I combat that in play is I use repetition. So I will utilize the same play schema for as long as that child wants to through many sessions. So if you listen to the episode with Karen McWaters, who's an OT, we talked a lot about OT and speech collaboration with play therapy, and we will start where a child is at. So I have some children that the most regulating thing for them is to be on the spine. And that's where they feel safe. That's where they can build some of those capacities and learn to engage. So am I going to going to just push the kid on the swing and then let them get off the swing and we're going to be in the gym and they're going to not know what to do? No, I'm going to use the swing where they're regulated to engage. I'm going to wait an extra second of anticipation, see if they give me a look, see if they smile, see if they make a gesture and work to build that engagement back and forth first with the swing. If you have a child that has a certain play schema that they like, I had a kid that loved Mario. He understands a lot of Mario. So I'm going to use the cognitive understanding he has of this play schema and use that to build 
more imaginative play, to build problem solving, to help him work through some playful obstruction, which you have to be careful with that. I know that playful obstruction can be helpful in getting language, but it breaks the flow a lot. And if you keep obstructing a kid, they're going to want to punch you. And that's not good for your session. It's the failure model. Like when I was in school, we were taught the failure model. So you set them up such that they will fail independently in the pursuit of their task, such that they're forced to use functional language to meet their needs. Also, what you were talking about with your nonverbal patients, talking about the pre-linguistic skills when they're non-speaking, but they're starting those rhythmic voice patterns, when they're doing those, the cooing and the cawing and they're reaching, those are all the pre-linguistic skills that unfortunately oftentimes get shuffled to the side because we get so hyper-focused on developing those first well, words and sentences. And then what you have is, Michelle, you always say for feeding, you can't build your house on sand. Yeah, build it on A lot of the children that we see later on have built their communication on sand. Yes. They've learned these words and they've learned language, but they don't have the serve and return complete. That's why we have so many kids that can't stay on topic. Yes. Partly because they don't care because a lot of autistic kids (laughs) don't want to talk about the weather. And they're like, why am I talking about this? This I mean, my brother, I would be talking about something at home and I'd be complaining to my sister about something and be like, why do you care? Why do you care about this? Who cares? Like, Uh, neurodivergent people want to go deeper, which I totally get because sometimes I get annoyed with the shallow conversations, but we have to help them understand the value of connecting and engaging in order to want to continue those conversations and to want to connect with someone on something and to pull them in. And I think of one specific patient who I was saying wants to connect all the time. will problem solve certain things. We were playing in the kitchen and there was a French fry and he's like, it's a chicken nugget pretzel. And I was like, okay, well, you problem solve. I asked him the other day, I, he had a cut on his arm. And I said, oh, buddy, like, where'd you get that cut? And he goes, a knife. It was not a cut from a knife, but a knife cut. Have cut. That's where we're at. Like a knife cuts, because guess what? We probably saw a picture that said, what does a knife do? Yes. And then we were talking about my coworker is moving to Florida and we were talking about her leaving. And I was like, oh, if you're been to Florida, and he had just heard that she was going with her family. He's like, he had my family forever and ever in my family. I was like, okay, uh-huh. so we really want to keep this conversation going, but we're having to work on these bottom up skills while also working on top down because you don't have a kid that you're ever going to just work on one or the other. There's strengths in certain areas and they need support in other areas. So you have to always be looking at bottom up, top down at the same time and acknowledging all of these differences. And you start out with like, we've talked a lot about like those pre-linguistic skills, how you're building that. And then the beauty of play as children start to develop more symbolic understanding and have more imaginative play. And when you're able to get into that world is that you can really play off of real life scenarios and you can also help them express what they're feeling. A lot of times in play-based therapy, you will pull a lot of things from children that maybe happened earlier that day, or maybe they aren't able to express just through language, but they're able to act it out and play because it's safer or they don't quite have the language. And so maybe instead of saying that someone made fun of me at school, this bad guy hurt this good guy. And they really just have the understanding of bad guy versus good guy. And so now we're having to work through the language of what that means. 
what I love about floor time is that it helps you put language and see communication from a bigger perspective. So when some of those functional emotional developmental capacities, you have regulation, you have engagement, you have two-way communication, you have problem solving. Piaget's stages of development. So I'm working on problem solving, but I'm working on that with language and communication to maybe have a child ask for my help with problem solving, to maybe use the language to answer questions, to work through something. But what the research on play tells us is that if it's motivating for them, they're more likely to want to do it and they're going to understand it. So, and it just sets them up better for life. If they have an idea and you honor their idea and you help them work through this imaginative play through language, then they're able to take any other problem and use those skills and those language skills to be able to work through that problem instead of you giving them one specific task and then memorizing how to do the task. They're not building the neural pathways to be able to expand it into other areas. And so that's where Karen Purvis talking about the repetitions, like play allows them to carry it over because it it involves so many other parts of their brain. And if they're feeling it in their body and they're feeling the emotion and they're taking ownership of it, it's so much more valuable than a artificial set up situation that you're creating for this child. Yes. Folks, we know this without realizing that we know this. We ourselves learn through play and it's predicated upon our ability to be regulated to learn. So everybody get really uncomfortable for two seconds and let's go to the uncomfortable so that we can get comfortable. Everybody, and you don't have to raise your hands for this, but it's summertime. So to the caregivers in the room, who here is worried about the extra expense of having to pay for daycare? We have an amazing nanny. That is a lot more each month than what we planned. I have a hard time when I'm at work. It's, are they okay? Are they giving her the business? Because they're boys. Sometimes they give each other the business. Today, they were seeing who could fart the loudest without letting mom hear them fart. That's a great game to play. That was stressful. That is something extra that's on my plate right now, right? So the question is, when we are distracted, when we are dysregulated, we are not set for learning. We're all taking a class together. How many of you were distracted when you were in grad school because you were worried about having to pay rent or having to come up with enough money to cover the cost of textbooks at the end of the semester or the beginning of the semester, right? It's hard to focus and be fully present in your practicums and be fully present in your coursework when you have those concerns, right? But when you are set for success along Maslow's hierarchical needs, and that's where we're at, Maslow's hierarchical needs also correlate to these children that are neurodivergent because when they're not feeling safe, that base of the pyramid, and they're not feeling safe at their level, according to Piaget's development. So we have to take in the adult learning concepts as well as psychological development count. Once you have all of those ducks in a row, bam, you're set for success and language can happen. But I mean, these were things that we were taught a lifetime ago in coursework. It's just, you have to pull them all together. And when you think about language, we do have to acknowledge that I would say the majority of the children that we work with have some sort of trauma. We have to assume that they have trauma. 
whether it's microaggressions throughout their life because they couldn't do certain things or they had big T trauma or their world is scary because they have sensory differences trauma. Like I go into a session assuming that a child has trauma. So we need to help them feel safe because also, like you said, if a child doesn't feel safe, they can't learn yes. and they can't grow. Yes. And connection is incredibly regulating. So even from a connection standpoint, if you can have a child feel connected to you, there's a lot more that they can do. There's so much value and they talk about it in the body keeps the score of connection and how it is Basically, you can't feel connected and feel completely unsafe. Like those two don't go together. And it's so true because, and you can pull from the connectedness. So I was explaining to someone in the in-service that I did about how you create these connections and study after study shows that having a good support network constitutes the single most powerful protection against becoming traumatized, safety and terror are incompatible. So when you build these connections and a child feels safe and they connect more with their parent, caregiver, sibling, you, whoever, you can then pull on the connection to override some of those experiences they may have where they feel completely dysregulated, they feel unsafe. So an environment where it might be louder or they might be scared about something. If you have built that connection, that trust, you can pull out on that to help them come out of that fight, flight, freeze, fawn more quickly. And the more you can do that, the more opportunities they have to learn. And the more opportunities they have to learn, the more language they can develop. So part of this is just continuing to develop an understanding because I know I always get the question of, I don't feel like I'm working on language. I don't feel like I'm doing anything. I don't feel like, how can I write these goals? I'm like, I had a OT teach my floor time course that gets goals covered to say child will experience joy because she's able to explain the value of that and how that's a prerequisite. And I know we're speech language pathologists, but we are supposed to teach communication. And I think, unfortunately, our name should be something different, but language don't see regulating. And how I explain it too, is when you build on those skills and you build problem solving and you have a child with this imaginative play, they want to communicate. They want to expand. They want to tell you how this bird that's playing on this treehouse feels. They want to connect with you. It's so motivating and language is innate. Communication is something that when you build those skills, they want to do. And if you're having to pull and pull and pull and pull, maybe we need to linger, as they say, at lower levels. Maybe we need to help them feel their body. Maybe we need to work on play. Maybe we need to stop forcing the language. And let's face it, making a child communicate in the way that you want them to communicate is a little ableist. So we also have to acknowledge our own preconceived notions of how we think someone should communicate. And yes, I understand that they're going to go into the real world and they're going to be engaging with neurotypical humans who may not quite understand them. We want to set them up for success, but there's so much value in helping them advocate for what they need, as opposed to going through the world, trying to make everyone else feel comfortable in that way. One of the obstacles that I face is caregiver buy-in to that approach mm-hmm. because caregivers have oftentimes, we're not the first 
we're not the last therapist that these families are going to encounter. So if they're used to case in point years ago, I had this little boy who I went out with and the dad and the mom were used to 25 hours a week of ABA therapy. So they said his table's in the corner next to the fireplace that's padded because when he didn't enjoy sitting at the table, his escape route was to run away and he would often fall on the brick, like the raised lip edge of the fireplace. And they had padded it with like pool noodles and like a pool floaty because they had like pool in the backyard. Rather ingenious pad job there, but Kesara. And dad was like, and I'm going to sit here on the couch and just watch. And I was like, oh no, that's not how we do that. And dad goes, here's his flashcards. And he handed me a pack of Dollar General Sesame Street flashcards where it was like, you know, like the number of the objects and that's how many Elmos there were or, you know, whatever. I was like, I don't use flashcards. And he goes, well, all the other therapists use flashcards. And I'm like, I'm not like the other therapist. And he goes, well, this is what we're used to. And I said, okay, then we're going to use the flashcards in a more meaningful, fun way. So the boy was sitting at the table and he was like glazed over. Like he was just done. He checked out from the activity before the activity even began because he was anticipating the routines that were established by others. So I picked up the flashcards. I was like, we're going to go looking for them on your mark, get set, go. And I chucked the flashcards everywhere and his face lit up like it was Christmas. Dad looked mortified. But by the end of our hour long session and we were playing 52 card pickup with Sesame Street characters and like, look, all right, where is it? Let's look. I see. And, you know, engaging. And dad was mentioned he had more words and that one session that he'd had in weeks. And I was like, we made it fun. And was that child led? No, but I had to get a family to get on board with even engaging in something that was play. And by the end, when I came back the week following, he met me at the door with the deck of cards and was ready for me to then chuck Mm -hmm. them and play and run around. And then he got like his sister's magnifying glass and it was so much fun. It was, we, it was a therapy session. I enjoyed also gave me ho-hos. There was that too. (laughs) I also have to acknowledge parents will say, oh, you just play with them all day. And I'm like, no, yes. I love it. It It looks like that. Yeah. But there's so many things I'm doing. And also other therapists will say, oh, well, you know, you just let the kid do whatever they want. No. Like, well, no boundaries are incredibly important. My rules are have fun. Safe. Show respect. Yes. Be safe. If it's not safe, I'll stop you. You need to be respectful and have fun. But it is not just letting a kid do whatever they want. It's recognizing that you have to acknowledge where they are. And Stanley Greenstone will say, go into their world and create a shared world. Yes. Try to pull them into the shared world because we all want to connect. And you also have to think about the three-year-old. And a four-year-old shouldn't be having to do work. No. So the whole work then play thing really just throws me off because I would hate play too if every time, like it was just like a thing that you were using to get me to do something I didn't want to do. Like that, I just don't really love that. And what we're talking about and what research has shown is that play is what our brains are meant to do. So if you're taking a three-year-old and they're making them do work, their brain is probably telling them that this isn't something that I'm supposed to be doing. This doesn't feel safe. This doesn't feel right. This doesn't feel fun. 
And that's also probably why it's harder to get them to do the thing you want them to do because their brain is saying, no, I'm supposed to play. This is supposed to be fun. This isn't safe. This feels uncomfortable. Yes. Fight or flight mode. Or fun. Or fun. And I will also say it's the children who are the easiest kids that you should be the most worried about. Yes. Because children are supposed to be learning about the world. They're supposed to want to engage with. They're supposed to want to figure out what's going on. If a child is two and they're sitting in a chair for a whole hour with you, I'm wondering, do we have something motor going on or why are we so low arousal? Do we need some input to, as Jesse Ginsburg talks about, and we had her on the podcast two weeks ago, I think those low arousal kids, they need higher arousal because you need to be in a state of not super high, not super low, but in a good state of arousal to learn also. And so, and those kids that are easy are they just compliant? Like, do they just want to be told that they're doing the right thing? And that shows no initiative and self-advocacy. That's the piece that worries me. Mm -hmm. The autonomy piece. Do I have the right to say no as to what's happening to my body? So Erin and I were getting ready to go lecture. It was at like Thursday morning and we were putting her makeup on. Y'all, she's got the fancy face serums. I'm just saying like, it was lovely. But I'm getting towards 30 and I need them now. It's not well, I'm almost 40 and I don't use them. So I'm going to need to now buy them. Thank you for heydays. But with the podcast that we were listening to and they were talking about autonomy and you talk about the easy kids, all I can think about is for those of you that don't know, I have a special needs older brother-in-law who has a litany of etiologies and comorbidities. But one of his classmates when he was in high school was molested. Bad choices happened to his peer. And the part that worries me is those easy kids that just sit there and passively engage in the world. They're the ones that need the ability to say, no, stop. This doesn't feel right. And those are the ones that we have to respect because otherwise we are setting them up for, as we tell the boys, the bad choice makers in the world that look sneaky. And that's scary. But I mean, I'm a mom and a sister. But that's also why that's so valuable. The importance of those circles of communication, not not acknowledging every ounce of communication that they're using to protest or request or connect or whatever, because I want them to know that their communication and whatever way they choose to communicate is valuable and is being honored. I want them to know when they grimace that I'm acknowledging that they don't know, especially at the beginning that they're having a fit, like. Our babies in the NICU are desatting and bradying. Their body is telling them this isn't safe. When you're feeding them, you need to acknowledge it to tell them that your body is communicating something, you're communicating it outwardly, and I'm acknowledging it. A grimace or a frown. They may not fully understand what they're feeling, but when you acknowledge it and you pull something away, then they start, that's presuming competence. They start to understand that. And we need to stop referring to kids, this is just my opinion, as like sweet or this kid's so sweet. This kid's so nice. Okay, great. What about when the kid comes in? They're not sweet. Yep. And honestly, I was a child who was so compliant and wanted to do everything right and never wanted to upset anybody. And it's taken me until I'm 28 years old to actually sit down and be like, what do I want? I have my own individual differences, but I was able to communicate what I wanted a little bit more. Yes. So proud of you. Yeah. And also and this is just because it's been on my heart, but we need to think about the way that we're talking about children's individual differences with other children. In the clinic I work at, there's so much opportunity 
to teach children about other children and about their differences, we have to be careful of the words that we're using. I have a child that's in a wheelchair and there are other children that are running around and want to touch the wheelchair or come, come and engage with her. And it's both an opportunity for that one child to learn. This is part of her body. Yes. Because do not just touch her chair yes. and for her to learn back off. Like I put on her device, move. And I put on her device, that's my chair. And like, it may not sound polite, but I guarantee you that's how she wants to say it. Guess what? It's fine. The polite thing, I get it, especially living in the South, everyone has to be polite. And yes, ma'am, yes, sir. Sometimes I don't want to be polite. And sometimes I want my children to be able to say things in a way that they want to say. Yes. Case in point, I was doing a session in the large gym and we were rocking back and forth and we were talking about our emotion words. And a little child came in and he had amniotic band syndrome and ended with a below the elbow amputation because of the amniotic band. And the child that I was working with is nine. He is goose. He is my oldest child and reminds me so much of goose. And he said very loudly for the other children in the room, Hey, that kid doesn't have an arm. And I was like, And he is so cool. Did you see him? How boring would it be if we all looked the same? And he was like, yeah, boring. That's not cool. Hey, kid, I like you. And it was just like, it was like, and inside, please know inside, it was all of the feelings. Like, how do I scaffold this so that it's a positive interaction for the other child while still empowering my child because he doesn't know that the unspoken invisible social rules of our society say don't make commentary like that but it was an opportunity to grow and to also embed our adjectives and our feeling words that we had been working on as well yeah. so it was- we also are taught not to make commentary so we don't have to have the hard conversations and so yes. that you just have to put your head down and not acknowledge it. And sometimes that can be a little ostrich like of us. Yeah. Because we have to hold the hard conversations. Yes. Okay. I mean, we only talked about this like most of Friday night and a good chunk of Saturday, but we could continue talking about this. So like go team, but it's past our bedtimes. And so folks, today was the day today we hit a million downloads and we just have to tell you all, thank you very much for being part of this journey today. We are not doing anything over the top to celebrate it. Honestly, I would be a puddle of mud and we wouldn't have made it through this talk that needed to have a full discussion, but stay tuned because there's things planned for later this month to celebrate this. I'm pretty sure there'll be a couple of giveaways as I'm looking at the stack of books down here by the side. So in more lectures coming up on this. Oh yes. We also have a a very, very brief. Yeah. Yes. Erin has a six hour course coming up on this topic and we have our five hour PFD in the public schools course coming up the end of this month. So to stay tuned with everything that's going on, please check out First Bite Podcast on Instagram. All of our upcoming lectures are listed in the link tree. You can also check out speechtherapypd.com for the list of the upcoming courses that we're giving. Oh yes, there's a coupon code, code PFD50 to get 50% off the Pediatric Feeding Disorders Conference. And that's five hours. And you heard that right. It's all about pediatric feeding and swallowing in the public schools. And we are going to have Angie Neal, who's the guru of R as well as the lead SLP with Department of Education for South Carolina. Kristen West and Dr. Rocky Garcia is joining Aaron and I. 
be sure to check out Chasing the Swallow on Amazon. Remember that accounts for 1.35 or 13 and a half hours of ASHA continuing education. Make sure that you log into your speech therapy with Speech Therapy PD and make sure that you log into your speechtherapypd.com account at the end of this episode so that you can earn your 0.1 or one hour ASHA CEU for the course. This is a lot. But first and foremost, when Aaron and I started this like four years ago, we had no idea how richly blessed this would be and all of the amazing people that we would encounter and engage with. And thank you. Yeah. You probably make me cry, but I'm usually so good at not crying. (laughs) This has been so much fun. I mean, we work full time and run households and this is a labor of life. I wasn't even a CF yet in our first episode. I'm I'm not going back and ever listening to that. So. It was great. Oh my God. It was great. Thank you, everybody. This is so awesome. So if y'all have any courses or a speaker that you're itching to have us message us on the land of the Insta, we will see what we can do. So everybody peace out. Have a good night. (laughs) Feeding Matters guides system-wide changes by uniting caregivers, professionals, and community partners under the Pediatric Feeding Disorder Alliance. So what is this alliance? The alliance is an open access collaborative community focused on achieving strategic goals within three focus areas, education, advocacy, and research. So who is the alliance? It's you. The Alliance is open to any person passionate about improving care for children with a pediatric feeding disorder. To date, 187 professionals, caregivers, and partners have joined the Alliance. You can join today by visiting the Feeding Matters website at www.feedingmatters.org. Click on PFD Alliance tab and sign up today. Change is possible when we work together. That's a wrap, folks. Once again, thank you for listening to First Bite, fed, fun, and functional. I'm your humble but yet sassy host, Michelle Dawson, the All Things Peds SLP. This podcast is part of a course offered for continuing education through speechtherapypd.com. Please check out the website if you'd like to learn more about CEU opportunities for this episode, as well as the ones that are archived. And as always, remember, feed your mind, feed your soul, be kind and feed those babies.